good friends, welcome back to Bitching About the Decameron. Last time we heard the fifth and sixth stories from the fourth day, a day on which the leader of the party, Philostrato, has declared that all stories should be about lovers whose love ended unhappily. Thus far, they've been a pretty miserable bunch, but Philostrato has unceasingly demanded that they be ever more miserable. So let's hear what stories are going to come next. When Panfilo had dispatched his tale, the king, showing no trace of compassion for Andreola, made it clear by looking towards Emilia that he wished her to add her tale to the ones already told. And without pausing in the least, she began. My dear companions, having heard Panfilo's story, I am impelled to narrate one that is dissimilar to his in every respect, except that, just as Andreola lost her lover in a garden, so did the girl of whom I am obliged to speak. Like Andreola, she too was arrested, but she freed herself from the arm of the law, not through physical strength or unwavering virtue, but by her untimely and unexpected death. Well, that's promising. As we have already had occasion to remark, whilst love readily sets up house in the mansions of the aristocracy, this is no reason for concluding that he declines to govern the dwellings of the poor. On the contrary, he sometimes chooses such places for a display of strength no less awe-inspiring than that used by a mighty overlord to intimidate the richest of his subjects. Though the proof will not be conclusive, this assertion will in large measure be confirmed by my story, which offers me the pleasing prospect of returning to your fair city, whence, in the course of the present day, ranging widely over diverse subjects and directing our steps to various parts of the world, we have strayed so far afield. Not so very long ago, then, there lived in Florence a young woman called Simona, a poor man's daughter, who, due allowance being made for her social condition, was exceedingly gracious and beautiful. Although she was obliged to earn every morsel that passed her lips by working with her hands, and obtained her livelihood by spinning wool, she was not so faint-hearted as to close her mind to love, which for some time had been showing every sign of wishing to enter her thoughts via the agreeable words and deeds of a youth no more highly placed than herself, who was employed by a wool merchant to go round and distribute wool for spinning. So the reference here is to the medieval cottage industry of spinsters. The word spinster is the feminine form of spinner, just like brewster is the feminine form of brewer. And it was a fairly widespread profession for poorer women in the Middle Ages, and particularly in this sort of period. In the process of cloth production, the weaving itself could be done in a somewhat more industrial setting. Not heaps more, but a somewhat more industrial setting. But the work of spinning the thread, which can take as much as 10 hours of labor for the thread to weave for one hour, so there was a lot of labor involved, was usually sent out to, well, essentially to contractors to various women around the place. So they would be brought the wool, they would spin it, and they would deliver that to their employer who would then make use of it. So here we go. They are workplace colleagues, essentially, in a medieval context. Having thus admitted love to her thoughts in the pleasing shape of this young man, whose name was Pasquino, she was filled with powerful yearnings, 
but was too timid to do anything about them. And as she sat at her spinning and recalled who had given her the wool, she heaved a thousand sighs more torrid than fire for every yard of woolen thread that she wound round her spindle. For his part, Pasquino developed a special interest in seeing that his master's wool was properly spun, and acting as though the finished cloth was to consist solely of the wool that Simona was spinning, and no other, he encouraged her far more assiduously than any of the other girls. The young woman responded well to Pasquino's encouragement. She cast aside a good deal of her accustomed modesty and reserve, whilst he acquired greater daring than was usual for him, so that eventually, to their mutual pleasure and delight, their physical union was achieved. This sport they found so much to their liking that neither waited to be asked to play it by the other, but it was rather a question whenever they met of who was going to be the first to suggest it. With their pleasure thus continuing from one day to the next, and waxing more impassioned in the process, Pasquino chanced to say to Simona that he would dearly like her to contrive some way of meeting him in a certain garden, whither he was anxious for her to come, so that they could feel more relaxed together, and less apprehensive of discovery. Simona agreed to do it, and one Sunday, immediately after lunch, having given her father to understand that she was going to the pardoning at San Gallo, she made her way with a companion of hers called Lagina to the garden Pasquino had mentioned. When she got there, she found him with a friend of his whose name was Puccino, but who was better known as Stramba, or Dotty Joe. What? Dotty Joe. Like the word Dotty and then the name Joe. I'm so confused, but there's no footnote to explain things to me. Well, I guess Dotty Joe shall exist unquestioned. Stramba hit it off with Lagina from the very beginning, and so Simona and Pasquino left them together in one part of the garden, and withdrew to another to pursue their own pleasures. In that part of the garden to which Simona and Pasquino had retired, there was a splendid and very large clump of sage, at the foot of which they settled down to amuse themselves at their leisure. Some time later, having made frequent mention of a picnic they were intending to take, there in the garden, after they had rested from their exertion, Pasquino turned to the huge clump of sage and attached one of its leaves, with which he began to rub his teeth and gums, claiming that sage prevented food from sticking to the teeth after a meal. After rubbing them thus for a while, he returned to the subject of the picnic about which he had been talking earlier. But before he had got very far, a radical change came over his features, and very soon afterwards he lost all power of sight and speech. A few minutes later he was dead, and Simona, having witnessed the whole episode, started crying and shrieking and calling out to Stramba and Lagina. They promptly rushed over to the spot, but when Stramba saw that not only was Pasquino dead, but his face and body were already covered with swellings and dark blotches, he exclaimed, "'Ah! Oh, you foul bitch! You've poisoned him!' He made such a din that he was heard by several of the people living in the neighbourhood of the garden, and they rushed to see what it was all about. On finding this fellow lying there, dead and swollen, and hearing Stramba taking it out on Simona and accusing her of having tricked Pasquino into taking poison, whilst the girl herself, grief-stricken because of the sudden death of her lover, was so obviously at a loss for an explanation, they all concluded that Stramba's version of what had happened must be correct. She was therefore seized and taken to the palace of the Podesta, shedding copious tears all the way. Stramba had by this time been joined by two other friends of Pasquino, who were known as Atticiato and Malagavole, or in other words, Potbelly and Killjoy, and the three of them stirred up so much fuss that a judge was persuaded to interrogate her forthwith about the circumstances of Pasquino's death. Being unable to conceive how Simona could have practised any deceit, 
or how she could possibly be guilty, he insisted that she should accompany him to the site of the occurrence, so that, by getting her to show him the manner of it and seeing the dead body for himself, he could form a clearer impression of the matter than he had been able to obtain from her words alone. Aha! Medieval forensics! Without creating any disturbance, he therefore had her conveyed to the spot where Pasquino's body lay, still swollen up like a barrel, and shortly afterwards he went there himself. Gazing at the body in astonishment, he asked her to show him precisely how it had happened. Whereupon Simona walked over to the clump of sage, and having told the judge what they had been doing together so as to place him fully in possession of the facts, she did as Pasquino had done, and rubbed one of the sage leaves against her teeth. Simona's actions were greeted with hoots of derision by Stramba, Atticiato, and Pasquino's other friends and acquaintances, who told the judge that they were pointless and frivolous, and denounced her wickedness with greater vehemence, at the same time demanding that she be burned at the stake, since no lesser punishment would be appropriate for so terrible a crime. The poor creature was petrified, not only on account of her sorrow at losing her lover, but also because of her fear of suffering the punishment demanded by Stramba. But suddenly, as the result of having rubbed the sage leaf against her teeth, she met the very same fate as the one that had befallen Pasquino, to the no small amazement of all those present. So, hands up who didn't expect that result, by the way? Oh, happy souls, who within the space of a single day were granted release from your passionate love and your mortal existence, and happier still if your destination was shared, and happy beyond description if love is possible after death and you love one another in the afterlife as deeply as you did on earth. But happiest of all, so far as we who have survived her are able to judge, is the soul of Simona herself, since fortune preserved her innocence against the testimony of Stramba and Atchiato and Malagevole. It was certainly worth no more than a trio of carders. Carding being a stage in the wool preparation process that comes before you can spin it. And possibly even less, and by causing her to die in the same way as her lover, found a more seemly way of ending her misery. What? Ah yes, more seemly. Ugh. For not only was she able to clear herself from their slanderous allegations, but she went to join the soul of her beloved Pasquino. The judge, along with all the others present, was hardly able to believe his eyes, and remained rooted to the spot for some little time, not knowing what to say. But eventually he recovered his wits, and said, The sage is evidently poisonous, which is rather unusual to say the least. Before it should claim any further victims, let it be hacked down to its roots and set on fire. In the judge's presence, the man in charge of the garden proceeded to carry out these instructions, but he had no sooner felled the giant clump than the reason for the deaths of the two poor lovers became apparent. Crouching beneath the clump of sage, there was an incredibly large toad, by whose venomous breath they realised that the bush must have been poisoned. Nobody dared to approach it, and so they surrounded it with a huge pyre, and cremated it alive together with the sage bush. So ended the investigation of his worship into the death of poor Pasquino, whose swollen body, together with that of his beloved Simona, was buried by Stramba, Anaticiato, and Guccio Imbrata, and Malagevole in the church of St. Paul, which happened to be the parish to which the two dead lovers belonged. It's the sort of story that if it was told today would be told, would be almost a farce, like the idea of She's like, oh, he was rubbing the sage leaf on his teeth, and then he suddenly died. Like this, and then rubs the sage leaf on her teeth, and then suddenly dies. 
Like, to us, it's it's so obvious that it's a bad idea to do that. And interestingly, there's no actual commentary of how the ladies and gentlemen received the tale. The narrative just goes on. When Amelia's tale had wound to a close, Nephile, having been bidden to speak by the king, began as follows. Excellent ladies, to my way of thinking, there are those who imagine that they know more than others, when in fact they know less, and hence they presume to set up this wisdom of theirs against not only the counsels of their fellow men, but also the laws of nature. No good has ever come of their presumption, and from time to time it has done an enormous amount of harm. Now there is nothing in the whole of nature that is less susceptible to advice or interference than love, whose qualities are such that it is far more likely to burn itself out of its own free will than be quenched by deliberate pressure. And so it occurs to me that I should tell you a story about a lady who, in the belief that she could remove from an enamoured heart a love which had possibly been planted there by the stars, sought to be wiser than she actually was, and by flaunting her cleverness in a matter that was beyond her competence, succeeded at one and the same time in driving both love and life from the body of her son. According to the tales of our elders, there once lived in our city a very powerful and wealthy merchant, whose name was Leonardo Sigieri, who had a son from his wife, called Girolamo, and who, after the child was born, carefully put all his affairs in order and departed this life. The boy's interests were skillfully and scrupulously managed by his guardians, acting in conjunction with his mother. He grew up with the children of other families in the neighbourhood, and became very attached to a little girl of his own age, who was the daughter of a tailor. As they grew older, their friendship ripened into a love so great and passionate that Girolamo could not bear to let her out of his sight, and her only regard for him was certainly not as extreme. On perceiving this, the boy's mother took him to task several times, and even punished him for it, but on finding that he could not be deterred, she took the matter up with the boy's guardians, being convinced that because of her son's great wealth she could, as it were, turn a plum into an orange. Okay, checking the footnotes on that one. Turning a plum into an orange. Is it about turning one thing into another, or is it about turning a lesser thing into a greater thing? Um, to make an orange tree out of a plum tree, implying that what is unremarkable may be transformed into something more desirable. So like the English saying, to make a silk purse out of a sow's ear. This makes rather less sense today because oranges are often cheaper than plums, but at the time oranges were a, and citrus in general, was a relatively exotic fruit that was relatively hard to grow. The main difference being that it's a, it's a plant that flourishes in warmer climates. So Spain, some parts of France could grow it, but it was certainly uh, more of a southern plant. and. These days, we have a lot more access to warm climates where oranges can be grown than did medieval Europe. This boy of ours, she told them, who has only just reached the age of 14, is so enamoured of a local tailor's daughter, Salvestra by name, that if we do not separate them, we shall perhaps wake up one morning to find that he has married her without telling anyone about it, and I shall never be happy again. If, on the other hand, he sees her marrying another he will pine away. And so it would seem to me that in order to nip the affair in the bud, you ought to pack him off to some distant part of the world in the service of the firm. For if he is prevented from seeing the girl over a long period, she will vanish from his thoughts, 
and we shall then be able to marry him to some young lady of gentle breeding. So once again, we have a story where there is a love that is inappropriate because of a class difference. The guardians agreed with the lady's point of view and assured her that they would do all in their power to carry out her proposal. And having sent for the boy at the firm's premises, one of them began talking to him in tones of great affection, saying, My boy, you are quite a big fellow now, and it would be a good thing for you to start attending to your own affairs. We would therefore be very happy if you were to go and stay for a while in Paris, where you will not only see how a sizable part of your business is managed, but you will also, by mixing with all those lords and barons and nobles who abound in that part of the world, become a much better man, and acquire greater experience and refinement than by remaining here. And then you can return to Florence. Having listened carefully, the lad gave them a short answer, saying that he would have none of it, since he considered he had as much right as anyone else to remain in Florence. His worthy mentors made several further attempts to persuade him, but being unable to extract any different answer, they reported back to the mother. She was livid with anger, and gave him a fierce scolding, not because he did not want to go to Paris, but on account of his love for Salvestra. But then, soothing him with honeyed words, she began to pay him compliments, and to coax him gently into following the advice of his guardians. And she played her cards so cleverly that in the end he agreed that he should go and stay there, but only for twelve months. And so it was arranged. Still passionately in love, Girolamo went off to Paris, where he was detained by a series of delaying tactics for two whole years. On returning to Florence more deeply in love than before, he was mortified to discover that his beloved Salvestra was married to a worthy young man who was by trade a tent-maker. Since there was nothing he could do about it, he tried to reconcile himself to the situation, and having inquired into where she was living, he began to walk up and down in the manner of a lovelorn youth outside her house, being convinced that she could not have forgotten him any more than he had forgotten her. But this was not the case, for as the young man very soon perceived, to his no small sorrow, she no more remembered him than if she had never seen him before, and if she did indeed recollect anything at all, she certainly never showed it. Nevertheless, the young man did everything he could to make her acknowledge him again, but feeling that he was getting nowhere, he resolved to speak to her in private, even if he were to die in the attempt. And this is the situation where I start saying, dude, back off, she doesn't care. But that's not how romantic young men behave in the Decameron, do they, Giovanni? Having inquired of a person living nearby regarding the disposition of the rooms, he secretly let himself into the house one evening, whilst she and her husband were attending a wake with some neighbours of theirs, and concealed himself behind some sheets of canvas that were stretched across a corner of her bedroom. There he waited until they had returned home and retired to bed, and when he was sure that her husband was asleep, he crept over to that part of the room where he had seen Salvestra lying down, placed his hand on her bosom and said, Are you asleep already, my dearest? Wow, dude! Creepy as fuck! The girl, who was not asleep, was about to scream, when the young man hastily added, For pity's sake, do not scream, for it is only your Girolamo. On hearing this, she trembled from head to toe and said, Oh, merciful heavens, do go away, Girolamo. We are no longer children, and the time is past for proclaiming our love from the housetops. As you can see, I am married, and therefore it is no longer proper for me to care for any other man but my husband. Hence I beseech you in God's name to get out of here. If my husband were to hear you, even supposing nothing more serious came of it, it would certainly follow that I could never live in peace with him again, whereas up to now he has loved me and we live calmly and contentedly together. Yes, excellent points, Girolamo. 
You're being a shit. To hear her talking like this, the young man was driven to the brink of despair. He reminded her of the times they had spent in each other's company, and of the fact that his love for her had never diminished despite their separation. He poured out a stream of entreaties and promised her the moon, but he was unable to make the slightest impression. All he wanted to do now was to die, and so finally, invoking the great love he bore her, he pleaded with her to let him lie down at her side so that he could get warm, pointing out that his limbs had turned numb with cold whilst he was waiting for her. He assured her that he would neither talk to her nor touch her, and promised to go away as soon as he had warmed himself up a little. Feeling rather sorry for him, Salvestra agreed to let him do it, but only if he kept his promises. So the young man lay down at her side without attempting to touch her, and concentrating his thoughts on his long love for her, on her present coldness towards him, and on the dashing of his hopes, he resolved not to go on living. Without uttering a word, he clenched his fists and held his breath until he finally expired at her side. I shouldn't laugh. I really shouldn't laugh. This is meant to be a poignant moment. But I just... Have you ever seen a toddler, like like a three-year-old, you know, get cranky and be having a tantrum and be so determined to get their way that they start holding their breath? And they'll hold their breath until they turn blue sometimes. But it's... We, we are literally incapable of holding our breath until we die. Like... We just can't do that, because before we die, we pass out, and the autonomic aspects of our nervous system reactivate the main breathing reflex. You can't... That doesn't... He's just lying there like a cranky toddler, with his fists clenched, being like, I'm not gonna live anymore. I shouldn't mock him, but I really can't help mocking him. After a while, wondering what he was doing and fearing lest her husband should wake up, the girl made a move. Girolamo, she whispered, it's time for you to be going. On receiving no answer, she assumed that he had fallen asleep. So she stretched out her hand to wake him up and began to prod him, but found to her great astonishment that he was as cold as ice to the touch. She then prodded him more vigorously, but it had no effect, and after trying once more, she realised that he was dead. The discovery filled her with dismay, for some time she lay there without the slightest notion what to do. Dear God, Girolamo, could you have put this woman in a more awkward position? This is not how you show that you care about someone. In the end, she decided to put the case to her husband without saying who was involved, and ask his opinion about what the people concerned ought to do about it. And having woken him up, she described her own recent experience as though it had happened to someone else then asked him what advice he would give supposing it had happened to her. And he just doesn't notice the body while she's saying this? To this, the worthy soul replied that in his view, the fellow who was dead would have to be taken quietly back to his own house and left there, and that no resentment should be harboured against the woman who did not appear to him to have done any wrong. In that case, said the girl, we shall have to do likewise and taking his hand she brought it into contact with the young man's body, whereupon he leapt to his feet in utter consternation, lighted a lamp, and, without entering into further discussion with his wife, dressed the body in its own clothes. And without further ado, he lifted onto his shoulders and carried it, confident in his own innocence, to the door of Girolamo's house, where he put it down and left it. Holy shit. I'm just imagining the sit. 
I'm just imagining the situation here where, like, this guy has just stubborned himself to death. And then he's, and then this woman, like, pokes him and he's like, shit, he's dead. What the fuck am I going to do now? And then wakes her husband up and it's like, hey, weird thought, but, like, what would happen if a dude just, you know, insisted, you know, snuck into someone's bedroom and then was like, please can I stay and lie in your bed until I, uh, until I'm warmed up a bit and then he just dies? Like, what should you do next? And the husband's like, hmm, interesting hypothetical. Well, they should probably just take him back to his own house and let them deal with it. And she's like, okay, cool, good idea. Look, look at this. And then it's like, guess what? You're touching a dead body now. There's a dead dude in bed with us. Holy shit. What the fuck? (laughs) The next morning, when the young man's corpse was discovered lying on the doorstep, a great commotion was raised, in particular by the mother. The body was carefully examined all over, but no trace of a wound or a blow could be found, and it was the general opinion of the physicians that he had died of grief, as indeed he had. His remains were taken into a church, to which the sorrowing mother came with numerous kinswomen and neighbours, and they all began to weep and keen over his body, as is customary in our part of the world. Whilst the tears and lamentations were at their height, the worthy man in whose house Girolamo had died turned to Salvestra and said, Just cover your head in a mantle and go over to the church where Girolamo was taken. Mingle with the women, and listen to what they're saying about this business, and I will do the same among the men, so that we may find out whether anything is being said against us. The girl readily assented, for she was stirred to pity now that it was too late, and was eager to gaze upon the dead features of the man who had been unable to persuade her, whilst he was still alive, to grant him so much as a single kiss. And so off she went to the church. What a wonderful thing love is, and how difficult it is to fathom its deep and powerful currents. The girl's heart, which had remained sealed to Girolamo for as long as he was smiled upon by fortune, was unlocked by his far from fortunate death. The flames of her former love were rekindled, and no sooner did she catch sight of his dead face than they were all instantly transformed into so much compassion that she edged her way forward, wrapped in her mantle, through the cluster of women mourners coming to a halt only when she was almost on top of the corpse itself. Then, with a piercing scream, she flung herself upon the dead youth, and as she failed to drench his face with her tears, that was because, almost as soon as she touched him, she died, like the young man, from a surfeit of grief. I find that very hard to believe. Of course this is a fictional story, but, like, was this a believable fictional story? Apparently it was. That's very odd to me. The women, who had thus far failed to recognise her, crowded round to console her and urge her to her feet, but since she did not respond they tried to lift her themselves, only to discover that she was quite still and rigid, and when they finally succeeded in raising her, they saw at one and the same time that it was Salvestra, and that she was dead. The women now had double cause for weeping, and they all began wailing again much more loudly than before. The news spread through the church to the men outside, and reached the ears of her husband, who happened to be standing in their midst. Having burst into tears, he simply went on crying, oblivious to the efforts of various bystanders to console and comfort him. But eventually he told several of them about what had occurred the night before between this young man and his wife, thus clearing up the mystery of their deaths, and everyone was filled with enormous sorrow. The dead girl was taken up and decked out in all the finery with which we are wont to adorn the bodies of the dead. Then she was laid on the selfsame bier upon which the young man was already lying. For a long time they mourned her, 
and afterwards the two bodies were interred in a single tomb. And thus it was that those whom love had failed to join together in life were inseparably linked to each other in death. Uh, just, you know. What the fuck, Giovanni? I'm, I'm just, I'm not even, like, I'm not even objecting, I'm just confused that that should be a plausible and satisfying story to even tell. Just... What? Bitching About the Decameron is created by Gwen David and produced by Amanda Martell. Take care, and thanks for listening.